Welcome to another episode of Down Ballot Counts. I'm Kyle Trigstad, politics editor at Bloomberg Government. And with me as always is senior reporter Greg Giroux. It's Monday, October 26th. Election day is just more than a week away. Some 60 million people have already voted. And Democrats appear to be on the brink of a possible clean sweep in Washington. To talk about where things stand, we're bringing back friend of the pod, Nathan Gonzalez, the editor and publisher of Inside Elections, a go-to site for election handicapping and analysis. After that, we'll break down an ad airing in Battleground, Texas. We were there with 99% of the precincts counted. Number of other key down-ballot races. This is a very dramatic turn. We will have to look. House will be in order. Chair requests that members clear the aisle, take seats, and cease audible conversation. From Washington. This is Bloomberg Government's Down Ballot Counts. Up first is Jero's Gem. Jero's Gem, my number of the week, is 82%. In the 60 House districts that the nonpartisan Cook Plook report presently rates as competitive, the Democratic nominee raised more money than the Republican nominee in 49 of them, or 82% of the total, in the first two weeks of October. That's according to Federal Election Commission reports filed late last week the last full campaign finance reports we'll see before next week's election. Though Republicans expected to be primarily on offense in the 2020 House elections after losing their majority in the 2018 election, the GOP is actually the defending party in more of the competitive districts on the ballot next week. They control 33 of the 60 districts, compared with 26 for the Democrats and one by the Libertarian Party of Justin Amash. In those 60 districts, the Democrats outspent the Republicans in 40 of them during the two-week period and reported more available cash on hand in 34 of them as of October the 14th. Robust fundraising has made Democrats bullish. They will not only hold their House majority but expand it beyond the 234 seats they presently control. Bloomberg government reported Friday that Democratic Senate nominees raised more money than their Republican counterparts in all 14 competitive Senate races during the first fortnight of October. You can see that story on our website, about.bgov.com. And that's your Jero's Gem of the Week. All right. Up next, we'll bring on Nathan Gonzalez. This is Bloomberg Government's Down Ballot Counts. Joining us now is Nathan Gonzalez, the editor and publisher of Inside Elections, which is a must-read newsletter for both its election handicapping and its insight on the candidates and campaigns themselves. Nathan, it's been six months since you last joined us. Thanks for coming back on for our penultimate episode before the election. Well, thank you for having me. I can't figure out if it's gone by fast or slow. It really depends on the minute and the hour, I think. Yeah, can it be both? I don't know. Um, <laughs> In your most recent newsletter, which, by the way, I get the dead tree version of in my mailbox twice a month and devour, uh, you wrote that Democrats are poised for a sweep in the presidential Senate and House. Is that still your thinking and why? Yes. Uh, you know, we're all we're all living in the post 2016 Trump surprise victory era. But the the I think the most truthful assessment and an analysis of the data is that uh, Joe Biden has the advantage uh, in part because of Biden having the advantage in the White House race, Democrats have the advantage to control the Senate, and uh, Democrats are poised to expand their majority in the House. Um, you know, I, I come at this with a level of humility and uh, and a, a little bit of maybe not trepidation, but with some of the scars of 2016. But that's 
that's what the data are pointing to. And it's not just the, you know, obviously the national polls, we've learned to really discount them, but that's what the state polls are showing, as well as the House district polls, uh, not just the individual House races, but the presidential race in these competitive House races demonstrate that President Trump is struggling to recreate that 2016 magic. And I like to think the pollsters learned a thing or two from 2016. And so the fact that he's struggling um, the, either the same amount or, or worse in some states um, means means what it does. It means it looks like what it really is. But um, so there's been a late rush of outside money to places like Kansas, Texas, and Alaska, where Democrats have won a single Senate race, I think, in the past two decades. Um, and then that's on top of funds flying to Georgia and North Carolina, where Democrats have won a grand total of two Senate elections in the last two decades. Uh, what's this saying to you, Nathan? Well, I, I think it shows a couple of things. I think it shows an expanded map, not only an expanded presidential map, but an expanded Senate map that because the president is underperforming his own 2016 totals by five, seven, 10, even 12 points, depending on the state, that that opens the possibilities for Democrats. Um, and it's also Democratic fundraising. I mean, Democratic fundraising continues to be through the roof. Whatever metaphor you want to use, um, President Trump has energized Democratic donors in a way we just haven't seen before. And when you have more money, you can go play in more places because some of these states, you can't even really buy ad time anymore. You have to go. You have to go elsewhere. And Nathan, how does the presidential race affect the Senate and the House? Um, why are we seeing kind of a greater relationship between how uh, constituencies are voting for president and voting for the Senate and the House? And why why has uh, Trump's uh, troubles uh, affected Republicans down ballot? Well, you guys know this and the listeners, uh, your listeners know this, that there is a high correlation between between the Senate and the presidential results and even the House. I mean, 2016, the presidential results and the Senate results matched up in every state. In the House, in the last two presidentials, uh, 92% and 94% of House districts voted for the same party for president as it did for the House. So there's a that's why we spend so much time looking at the top of the ballot when we're talking about down ballot. Uh, why is that the case is really your, your real question. I, I think voters are are just there's less of an appetite for ticket splitting in part because those majorities matter. You, you might like a politician personally, uh, but ultimately, whichever party controls that particular chamber ha- has a fundamental impact on what's going to get through or what's not going to get through or what judge is going to get confirmed or not confirmed. And uh, I, I don't see any real evidence that there's going to be a, an increased amount of ticket splitting this year. And we're speaking eight days away from the completion of the voting. Uh, What advice would you give listeners about how to monitor the congressional election results on election night? Uh, Follow each of us on Twitter. Uh, (laughs) um, We'll probably each have different responsibilities. Uh, I guess the broad the broad point is, you know, just be patient, Uh, you know, maybe don't put too much stock into any one tweet, maybe not into any one race call. I mean, there's going to be every network and lots of other groups that are in the the calling races business. And sometimes folks get it wrong. So, uh, you know, maybe ver- verify a particular race call as you as you go through. And and we've you know, we've all been saying practice, uh, just get ready for not knowing a lot of official results. Um, there, that'll just depend on how close these races are. There, there's a chance that we're going to know more on election night than what we thought before, if indeed Democrats are going to have as good of a night as what uh, the polls are pointing to. But are there any states on election night you're going to be looking for, for like signs of 
of what could be a, a good night for Democrats or a good night for Republicans? I, I, Florida and North Carolina are two great states to start with. Uh, they're they're probably going to count their ballots in an efficient way, and we should know results. You know, Florida at the presidential level, if Biden wins Florida, then he, he is most likely getting elected president of the United States. Uh, North Carolina, you know, that's a must win for President Trump, uh, not a must win for Biden. But you also have Senator Tillis there. If Senator Tillis is hanging on, then Republicans have a, a legitimate chance to, to maintain uh, control. It, it would be tight, but it would be a, a much closer race. If Tillis loses to Cal Cunningham, uh, then I think Democrats are well on their way to, to winning the majority. And Nathan, what has surprised you about this election cycle? What what mayor is likely to occur next week that would have been surprising to say at the start of this election cycle? Well, great. It's a good question. It's kind of two different questions, meaning um, what would have surprised me at the beginning of the cycle is sitting here today and talking about Lindsey Graham being in a in a neck and neck race. I mean, that's just I would have laughed at either of you if you would have told me that that would be the case. But now that's that wouldn't be a surprise, right? If Lindsey Graham lost, it would be a, a historic, a big win. But we've been talking about it for at least the last few months. Um, so what would be a surprise? You know, I guess it would be a surprise if if someone like uh, Martha McSally you know, won or or if Cory Gardner won, you know, to kind of flip it on its head because they've been in an extremely vulnerable position for virtually the entire cycle. Yeah. And I think Mike Pence is heading to South Carolina this week. I mean, speaking of Lindsey Graham, that's just uh, not where you thought the vice president would be. Well, and that's I think that's evidence of that Trump slump that I was talking about before that you know, Mike Pence isn't going to South Carolina just to save Lindsey Graham. They've got one, you know, the the Trump and Pence have one thing on their mind, and that's getting reelected. And so that means South Carolina is more vulnerable at the presidential level. I mean, Trump won South Carolina by 15 points, and now the vice president is going there in the final days. I mean, that that's just more – those are just more pieces to the puzzle that I was trying to kind of put together for, for you all that we're seeing. And, and speaking of that, I mean – I know the presidential is going to be a big part of this, but how are we going to define a wave this year if if a wave does exist? I mean, there's so, only so many House seats that Democrats can actually pick up after picking up 40 uh, in 2018. Um, and then the battleground Senate seats are mostly in traditional red states. I mean, are we going to get any, is there going to be a moral victory wave if <laughs> Democrats do way better in Kansas and South Carolina? I think I've learned to get out of the defining a wave business. Uh, I'll let I'll let other people do it. I, I guess you know if you at the Senate level, if you see the those traditionally Republican states, the Kansas, um, let's say Alaska, you know maybe Alaska is traditionally conservative and not traditionally Republican. Uh, on the House side, uh, maybe Colorado's third district, the the Western Slope, now open seat with uh, Diane Mitch Bush and and Lauren Boebert, um, or uh, Virginia's fifth district with now Dr. Uh, Cameron Webb and Bob Good, who defeated uh, Denver Riggleman. I mean, that that Virginia district, um, you know, you guys probably know the district better than I do, particularly, but the, uh, uh, you know, Corey Stewart won that district two years ago. That that tells me in the in the 2018 Senate race, that tells me that's a pretty strong DNA there. But um, but Cameron Webb has a very real chance of winning. Uh, I was just kind of curious, Nathan, um, if you had any kind of favorite House races or Senate races, any personal favorites that you've liked to you've liked to have covered this year, uh, just for the you know the compelling reasons for the the constituency or the candidates involved. Uh, Greg, that's like asking me to choose between my favorite child 
Um, I I don't know. I, I like them all. I mean, they're all, I can re- I can literally find something interesting about almost every race. Now maybe not California 21, the rematch between T.J. Cox and David Valadeo, but um, most of them they're they're intriguing and just seeing. I, I, let's put this. I think what's fun about each cycle is that it, they're different. I mean that there are always there are new candidates coming in. There's a new dynamic. Uh, that that is entering in, but uh, I like them all, Greg. All right, well, we'll have to leave it there. Nathan, it was great chatting with you again. Good luck the rest of the way, and we'll see you on the other side, whenever that is. Yeah, thank you for having me. All right, you can check out Nathan's ratings at insideelections.com, and you can follow Nathan on Twitter at Nathan L. Gonzalez, and that's Gonzalez with an S. Okay, up next, we're heading to Texas. A clear choice, thoughtful John Cornyn or liberal California-backed MJ Hagar. John Cornyn to open our economy, get our families back on their feet. MJ Hagar to destroy the Texas energy economy. Cornyn to continue his efforts to help abused women. Hagar, defund police. Cornyn, cover pre-existing conditions. Hagar, destroy Medicare. Texas clear choice, clear winner. John Cornyn. I'm John Cornyn, and I approve this message. Greg, that was the definition of a contrast ad from John Cornyn, the Republican senator from Texas who's facing a stiff challenge from Democrat M.J. Hagar. What stood out to you? Yeah, this really is an ad uh, packed with sharp contrasts favoring John Cornyn. He's the former number two Senate Republican seeking a fourth term and attacking M.J. Hagar, who's kept this race close. I was struck most, I think, not but not surprised by the ad saying that Cornyn would preserve protections for people with pre-existing health conditions. That's a linchpin of democratic campaign strategy and ads that advocate for protecting and building upon the Affordable Care Act, which Republicans have long sought to repeal. The ad says that Hagar would destroy Medicare. There's no citation in the ad for that. Hagar supports a Medicare-like public option that would compete with private health insurance plans. And the spot also accuses Hagar of seeking to defund the police, though Hagar has repeatedly denied that. And finally, I took notice that the ad was paid for by the Cornyn campaign and the National Republican Senatorial Committee, which is the political organization tasked with defending the Republicans' precarious 53 to 47 majority. The NRSC wouldn't be spending money in Texas if it felt it had this race sewn up. Cornyn Still rates a slight advantage, I think, but with Biden running competitively with Trump in Texas, the Senate race could be very close, Kyle. You know, I also noticed he was wearing a mask in a couple of shots, uh, which looks to me like a subtle nod to those suburban Republicans who don't really appreciate Trump's handling of the coronavirus. Um, also, I like the thoughtful label, thoughtful John Cornyn. I hope someone one day says thoughtful Kyle Trickstead. Okay, before we close the show, we've got a parting shot of trivia for you. This is Down Ballot Counts. It's trivia time on Down Ballot Counts. Each week I try to stump Kyle and you, our listeners, with a political trivia question. Let's first review last week's question and answer. And last week I asked for the last decade in which Arizona had two Democratic U.S. Senators. And I gave you in a Bloomberg government Twitter poll four choices. The 1950s, the 1960s, the 1970s, or the 1980s. It's time to ask Kyle, when was the last decade in which Arizona had two Democratic U.S. senators? I'm going to go with 1960s. Okay, the answer is actually the 1950s. It's been longer than the 1960s. Arizona had 
two Democratic U.S. Senators in 1952 when its senators were Carl Hayden and Ernest McFarland, who was then the Senate Majority Leader. McFarland lost in 1952 to Barry Goldwater, and Arizona since has had either one Democratic and one Republican senator or two Republican senators. Arizona had two Republican senators as recently as 2018 when Jeff Flake served with John McCain and then John Kyle after McCain's passing. Flake was succeeded in the 2018 election by Democrat Kirsten Sinema. She defeated Republican Martha McSally, who was subsequently appointed to the McCain seat that's on the ballot this year. McSally risks losing again next week against Democratic challenger Mark Kelly. So your correct answer, the 1950s. And now for this week's question. If Joe Biden wins the presidential election next week, he'd become the latest chief executive who previously served in the United States Senate, a chamber that's a well-known incubator of presidential ambition. Question. How many presidents have previously served in the Senate? And because that's a hard question for which to pinpoint a specific number, I'll give you four choices. 12, 16, 20, or 24. You may email your answer to bgovpodcast at bgov.com or tweet it at us using the Bloomberg government Twitter handle at bgov and use the hashtag downballotpod. We will post the question as a Twitter poll with the four choices I just mentioned, and I'll give the answer and ask a new question on the next episode of Down Ballot Counts. I'm officially on a losing streak, Greg, but uh, hopefully I'll redeem myself next week. All right, that's it for us today. Before we go, Greg, what else are you watching this week? Well, as you know, it's the final full week before the election, so you're going to see some closing arguments from candidates and TV ads, some last-minute spending shifts from the political parties, and super PACs may tell us which states and districts they're confident or not confident of winning. And there are final candidate debates this week, including tonight, Monday the 26th, in New York's first congressional district on eastern Long Island between Republican Congressman Lee Zeldin and Democratic challenger Nancy Goroff and in southwestern Michigan's 6th District between 34-year Republican Congressman Fred Upton and Democratic challenger John Hoadley. There are candidate forms Tuesday in the Alaska Senate and Alaska House races. Follow me on Twitter at Greg Giroux for more on candidate debates and forums. I'll note here that Michael Bloomberg, the majority owner of Bloomberg Government's parent company, sought the Democratic presidential nomination. He endorsed Joe Biden on March 4th. Down Ballot Counts was produced by David Schultz. You can follow us on Twitter at Kyle Trigstad and at Greg Giroux. And be sure to check out all the great politics coverage on Bloomberg Government's website, about.bgov.com. We will talk to you next week. When it comes to the environment, there are, let's say, a lot of moving parts. Climate change, air pollution, water pollution, chemical contamination, endangered species, renewable energy, superfund, asbestos, recycling, lead, mold, radon, stormwater... That's where Parts Per Billion comes in. Join me, David Schultz, on the Parts Per Billion podcast every Wednesday to sort out everything that's going on in the environment, from the courts to Congress to your backyard. Download and subscribe to Parts Per Billion wherever you get your podcasts, and thanks for listening.